Revelation 2 and 3. So if you were here last week, you know that John was introduced to an image of Jesus that was very intimidating, kind of scary. It made him fall down. And now that Jesus has said to John, I want you to write a letter to each of the seven churches, to each of these seven. And just so have you some reference of where these places are to which Jesus is writing, here's a map. Within moments, a map. There we go. There we go. So Patmos, that red dot that's in the middle of the water, that's where John is. Remember, he was in exile for being faithful and teaching about Jesus. Now, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, those are the seven churches. That's where they are. They're now modern-day Turkey. Then it was known as Asia Minor. And fun fact, the order of the letters in Scripture goes in the order in which if someone were to travel and deliver a letter, that's the order they would go. So you start out in Ephesus and you go up to Smyrna and then to Pergamum and then down, and that's the order in which they are in Scripture. All of these are significant cities of some uh, wealth or some particular skill or some um, thing that they were known for. And there are people who read these letters, thank you, Bo, um, there are people who read these letters and think, if we just knew the code, if we just knew uh, what Jesus was saying to each of these churches, then we would figure out when Jesus is going to come back. Because he's like written in some secret code, and if we just figured it out, then we would know. Well, not really. Not really. Because, well, it may seem secret code to us, it was perfectly understandable to them. So let me give you an example. A friend of mine, a couple of years ago, got a text from her friend and the text signed off, kits of lice. Kits of lice. And my friend thought, kits of lice? What, what is she doing? And then right after that, there came another text from the same friend that said, that was autocorrect. It was supposed to be lots of love. <laughs> kits of lice. And so, these two friends now use kits of lice as their little sign-off for each other. Which is great until one of my friend's um, assistants was checking out her email and sorting things through for her, and she saw kits of lice, and she was like, what is wrong with your friend? <laughs> and so she had to explain to her the whole story, because they shared this intimacy, this connection, and we get that, right? You've got little stories that you have with your family from trips that you've taken, or you've got things that you do with the people that you room with, that you live with. You've got people from your sports team that if somebody just says this particular phrase, and I see you smiling because you're all thinking of one right now, <laughs> that it's just like, oh yeah, we, we totally get that. And if you explain it to somebody else, it just maybe isn't as interesting because they weren't there. So... In these seven letters, and we're going to do a certain kind of a whole look at the whole of them, but we're going to go deep into a couple of them, there are lots of kits of lice. There are lots of phrases that made perfect sense to them, and we read and we're like, I don't know what's wrong with your friend kind of moment. <laughs> so let's, let's first look at the structure of every letter. Every letter has the same structure, and you're going to be super helped if you've got a Bible in front of you, and feel free, if you, if you don't have the physical old school kind, you can pull one open on your app. That's fine. I trust you. Really? Um, 
so here's the way it goes. Remember when John had all of these descriptors of Jesus? Every letter, Jesus begins with one of those descriptors that John just said, all right? So you see there, chapter 2, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. We just heard about that. Verse 8, these are the words of the first and last who was dead and came to life. Oh yeah, we heard about that. Verse 12, these are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Yes. And it goes on. Every, every beginning starts with a descriptor about Jesus. And then the letter says, this is what you're doing well, if they're doing something well. That's not always the case. But if they're doing something well, Jesus says, hey, this is what you're doing well. And then he says, but here's an area that needs some attention. Here's what we've got to work on. Here's where you've got to dial up your game. So uh, the beginning, this is who Jesus is. This is what you're doing well. This is what you're not doing so well. And then in all the letters, there are two phrases. One, to the one who conquers, I will give. And it's different for every place. And then, let the one who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Every letter. All right? So, let's look at what he says to Ephesus as an example of those things. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. I know that you cannot tolerate evildoers. You have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them to be false. I also know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for the sake of my name and that you have not grown weary. That's the good stuff. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then from what you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this is to your credit. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who conquers, I will give permission to eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. Now, there are two kits of lice phrases there. One, we have no idea what it means. The other one, we have a pretty good idea what it means. The Nicolaitans. It's a kits of lice phrase that's here and it's in Pergamum. We have no idea who that is. No idea. Scholars have looked, they've tried to make stuff up, good guesses, no certainty about who these people were, except that they were bad. Nicolaitans, bad. That's pretty much what we know. Now, the other kits of lice phrase comes at the very end. To everyone who conquers, I will give permission to eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. Now, there were two groups that made up the Ephesian church. You had the Jews and you had the Greeks. This was a phrase that was kits of lice for both of them. For the Jews, it reminded them of the Garden of Eden. When there was a tree of life in the middle and Adam and Eve were not allowed to take from it. And now Jesus is saying, if you conquer, you get to eat of the tree. The Jews would be like, yay, totally get that. Now, for the Greeks, their main goddess 
in Ephesus was named Artemis. And she had a temple, and outside the temple there was a beautiful garden. And in the middle of that garden was a tree. And if you were accused of a crime and you made it all the way to that tree, you could not be convicted. So they called that the tree of life. So this kits of life phrase fits for the Jews and the Greeks. And for us, we're just like, oh, a tree, that's lovely. But for them, it was like, oh, that, we can picture what that is. We know what that means. That has significance. Now let's look at the last letter, the message to Laodicea, chapter 3, verse 14. This one, he kind of goes right in pretty, pretty fast. To the angel of the church at Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the origin of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. And this is really, you know, kind of the PG-13 version of it because he's like, I'm going to puke you up. That's really what this means. Now, for the people in Laodicea, this would have been very graphic because there were two streams, two rivers that ran toward Laodicea. One came from a place of hot springs. One came from the mountains, a nice cold stream. So you had the hot springs over here, the cold mountain stream. They came together. By the time they got to Laodicea, bleh. It was lukewarm. It tasted bad from all the minerals of the hot spring. So when Jesus says, you know what you're like? You're like that water that nobody can drink. You're like that water when people go, oh, this looks so good. And they take a bit and they're like, bleh, that's what you're like. <laughs> Did you notice there's no good thing that he says about Laodicea? He just whoop, goes right in. Then he says this, verse 17. For you say, I'm rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Now, in that region of central Turkey that you all saw on the map, there are, that's kind of prone to earthquakes. And there had been a significant earthquake that rocked that whole region. And the government in Rome said, hey, we'll send out money to the cities, help them rebuild. Laodicea said, we're good. We don't need anything. That's because they had three significant sources of income. First, they were the banking industry. Lots of gold right there. Second, they were known for having sheep that had amazing black wool, Laodicean black wool, well-known, deeply wanted. And third, they had a medical school, and people from all over came to be trained at Laodicea, particularly in eye care. Now, knowing those three things, banking, wool, and eye care, listen to what Jesus says next. You do not realize that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Oh. <laughs> Therefore, I counsel you to buy gold from me, refined by fire. He's, he's meaning that both literally and metaphorically. So that you may be rich and white robes to clothe you and keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. You get it now? Kits of lice! Totally makes sense when you're in the know. And otherwise you're like, whoa, he's like, he's talking about how we have to pure eyes and we should all use eye salve. No, but that's not what he's saying. 
And then in verse 19, Jesus says, I reprove and discipline those whom I love. Be earnest, therefore, and repent. Listen, I'm standing at the door knocking. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come into you and eat with you and you with me. Now, let's just stop right there. Because that makes it sound like uh, the Laodiceans are home. You know, they're, they're having tuna noodle casserole. And they're hanging out at the table. Jesus knocks on the door and he's like, hey, can I, can I have some? Can I like come over for dinner? And they have to be like, oh, God, Jesus, fine, right? No. This is much more like the parables where the wealthy landowner heads away and puts his servants in charge of his stuff. And when he comes back, his servants had better be ready. That's the image here. So he's standing at the door knocking and he's like, are you ready? Are you ready for me to come back? Because then he makes this amazing offer. If you open the door, I'm going to come in and eat with you. Now, when a landowner came back from being gone for a long time, did the servant expect to, you know, sit up next to him and say, hey, how was your trip? No, you watched Downton Abbey. <laughs> these, these classes do not eat together. Like the landowner eats up here and the servants eat down there. That's the way it goes. But Jesus says, look, if you open the door to me, I'm going to come in and I'm going to eat with you and you with me. Incredible gesture of intimacy. And then he says, to one who conquers, I will give a place with me on my throne, just as I myself conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. You see, in each one of these letters, there are those little phrases that are just for them, that are just for this particular congregation in this particular space at this particular time. What Jesus is saying to each church is, I know you. In fact, if you flip a page back and you look at the right-hand column on page 995, you can see how often Jesus says, I know, I know, I also know, I know, I know, I know. I know you. Now, one definition of intimacy is to know and be known. And Jesus is saying to these seven churches, I know you. I know you inside and out. I know all about you. Do you really want to know me? Do you really want to know me? And through these letters, Jesus points out the threats to an intimate relationship between the churches and their Jesus. Sometimes the threats are internal. They're proud and arrogant, like the people in Laodicea. They've lost their first love, like the people in Ephesus. They need to wake up. They need to come to understand that suffering isn't to be feared, that laziness is not a good thing. Like, those are internal threats. And then there are these external threats. Some of them we know what he was talking about, but others like the Nicolaitans were like, no, 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 it was a threat. And then in one of the letters, he names a Jezebel, and like they're all kind of tolerating this Jezebel in their midst. We don't really know who that was. 
But then he talks about the Jews. And in some of these cities, the Jews were very powerful. And they would try to repress the Christians and minimize them and reject them. External threat. And the other external threat that every one of these churches dealt with was that they were flat dab in the middle of pagan culture. Culture that glorified sexual immorality, culture that glorified the other gods, culture that glorified gladiator games and violence. I mean, can you imagine living in a culture that glorified sex and violence? So those are the external threats, and these are the internal threats. And at the heart of all of those things is the idea that I really want to make life easy for myself. I really don't want to do these things that Jesus wants me to do because they're kind of hard. And I really don't want to engage culture and, like, call my neighbors on and stuff because, you know, that's kind of embarrassing and awkward. And, you know, it doesn't really matter that much if I look like them and talk like them and think like them. That's not a really big problem. I don't, I don't get... I just, I just really want to make my life a little easier. And Jesus is pretty clear in these seven letters that he did not come to make anybody's life easier. He is not interested. If you became a Christian to have an easier life, I am so sorry. Because that is not the game. That is not why we do this. That is not why we're here. In fact... If you look at the rest of Revelation, which we'll do, Jesus is pretty clear that stuff is coming, hard times are coming, and are you with me or against me? Because his people were so easily distracted, they were so caught by the things of this world. And when it's easy for us to read these seven letters and go, wow, those, those people, I mean, Jesus had only ascended, what, 50 years earlier than that? 60? And they're already all like, well, Come on. Except that we're just like them. We also were very easily distracted. We are like the dogs in the movie Up. <laughs> Have you seen the movie Up, right? You got the boy and the old man and the house and the balloons, and it lands in this place where this guy has all these dogs, and they are super well trained, a little intense, until one word is spoken. What is the word? Squirrel! Squirrel! Right? Or someone throws a ball. Right? And they just totally lose focus. And they're like, got somebody in a corner, got somebody in a corner, got somebody in a corner, somebody throws a ball, ball. Right? They just, they completely lose focus. We can have every good intention of bringing a $5 bill to loft to put it in the offering plate. And on Saturday night, someone down the floor yells, hey, we're all ordering pizza, who's in? And we go, pizza. We can have every intention of waking up just a little earlier, not a lot earlier, just a little earlier, 15 minutes. 50, that's, that's just 15 minutes, and our alarm goes off, and our body goes, sleep! <laughs> we can have every intention of trying to shape the culture of our floor or our dorm or our apartment or our house so that good words are spoken and wholesome language is used and we hear somebody who lives with us or near us just kind of going off and everything in our body goes, avert, avert, avoid, avoid, do not, do not, do not confront. We 
are easily distracted. The same things that were a problem for these seven churches are still, they're the same things that are a problem for us. We're lazy and arrogant and we lose our first love and we've got threats against us from the outside, some of which we can identify, some of which we can't. And our deep desire, if we're really honest, is I just want to make my life a little bit easier. And Jesus says to us, as he said to his people here, I did not come to make your life easier. And so we need to pay attention to what he says next. Every church, except Philadelphia, is told that the next thing that they need to do after Jesus says, this is what you're doing, this is the threat, this is how you're behaving, the next word Jesus says is repent. Repent. And now repent is the idea that you come to understand that your behavior makes Jesus want to vomit. That your behavior is insulting to him, that it crushes him. For these churches, they needed to understand that this was a high-stakes game. And that their behavior was making him angry. That's the first step to repent. You've got to realize, they had to realize that their behavior was grieving the Jesus that they were supposed to love. And then they had to not do it anymore. It's a both and. You can't repent just by no longer doing the behavior but wishing you could still do the behavior. You repent by saying, this behavior makes my Jesus angry, insulted, sick to his stomach. Therefore, I will not do it anymore. That's what Jesus says to these churches again and again and again. He does not say to them, oh, guys, listen, I know it is so hard to follow me and like the super pagan culture that you're in, so, you know, just, y'all just do your best. Does that sound like Jesus? No. Repent, he says, going back to the very first things he said when he began his ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, change your life. Realize that some of your behaviors are making God sick. Wake up. Repent. And then the second thing he says to the churches again and again and again is hold fast. Hold fast to the faith. Hold fast to my name. Hold fast to what you have been taught. Now, some of you know that I went skydiving about a month ago, and yes, thank you, still here, and um, I was uh, strapped to my instructor guide guy, and he said to me, when you fall out of the plane, I want, yeah, if, I, before we go actually out of the plane, I want you to hold fast to these two straps on your chest, and I said, oh, I will. 
And I held fast to those two traps as if my life depended on it. Now, I was strapped to a person who was in charge, actually, of my life. But I held on because he said, hold on. And when you're falling from a plane and a person tells you what to hold on to, you hold on to the thing. (laughs) Jesus is saying to his churches, y'all are falling out of a plane. Death is coming at you real, real fast. Hold on. Now imagine you're one of those churches. Imagine you're like church four. And so you hear somebody who's reading the letter and you hear already what he said to church one and church two and church three and you're like, oh, oh, we already know what what they're not but they're not doing well, and now everyone's going to know what we're not doing well. Like everybody, like the whole, like the whole denomination <laughs> is going to know. And so sure enough, the person reads your part of the letter, and everyone starts looking at each other and looking at the floor, and like, you know, that, that awkward thing, and like, oh man, hmm. And then he goes on to the next church, and you're not really listening because you're still thinking about what he said to your church. Now, if Jesus wrote y'all a letter and he said, here are the things you got to stop doing and you need to repent and you need to hold fast and you knew that every other Christian in the area was going to know exactly what Jesus told you, wouldn't you hold fast and wouldn't you repent? Yes, yes, you would. So why don't we? Why don't we? Why do we play games with this stuff? I spent my summer studying Revelation, and there were times when I would have tears coming down my face, both at the beauty of what God was revealing and at how clear he is about good and evil. Jesus is not messing around in these letters. And that's because of what he says to the Laodiceans at the end. I reprove those whom I love. I want you to be ready when I come back. I want you to be ready. And we may have come into this year with all the best intentions. But maybe already you've lied to a professor. Maybe, hypothetically. Some people do that, not you. Maybe already you've stolen something from your roommate. Maybe already you got drunk. And Jesus comes to us and he says, I know you. I know you. I know the things that you are doing really, really well, and there are some, and I love that, and I want you to do more of it. And I know the things that you're doing that quite honestly make me want to puke. Repent. Don't ignore. Don't avoid. Don't pretend that they don't exist. Don't pretend that they'll just go away by their own. Repent, he says. 
Repent. Come to understand that some of the behaviors we willingly choose offend Jesus, offend him. This one that we just spent 20 minutes singing about and glorifying and before the throne of God, we have a, he's advocating for us and there are things that we do that just drive him crazy. Repent, friends. Repent first to God. And then if you've got a buddy or a mentor or a chaplain or someone else, repent to them and figure out how you're going to change that behavior. What are you going to do differently? Do you need a support group? Do you need to pray? Do you need to do other things? You need to repent and you need to hold fast because death is coming at you. And just as our sins are the same as they were 2,000 years ago, the way we hold fast is the same as it has been through the church's history. We worship, we read scripture, we pray, we give, we serve. We spend time with people who worship and read scripture and pray and give and serve. That's how you hold fast. It's not super exciting. And some days, if we're honest, it's kind of tedious. But we hold fast because we know that the temptations of the world are going to come and they're going to try and peel our fingers off and say, it doesn't really matter that much what kind of language you use. It doesn't matter that much what you look like or what you dress like. It doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter what you watch on YouTube. It doesn't really matter. I mean, these things really don't matter very much. And that's why we come back and we worship and we pray and we read scripture and we give and we serve that's how we hold fast. Jesus says to his friends in these letters, repent and hold fast. And then he says, in every letter, in every letter, there's a promise. In every letter, to the one who conquers. And here again, there are like little kits of life phrases. There was a city that was that was on a big hill and it looked like a crown. And to that city, he says, I'm going to give you a crown of life. They're like, oh, I totally get that. To Ephesus, as we read, he says, I'm going to, I'm going to give you tree of life. You get access. You're going to get a white robe. You're going to get a name, or a stone with your name on it. All of those things meant something very specific to that group to remind them again, Jesus knows us and he loves us, and he's pulling for us, and he's going to help us. We don't do this by ourselves, thanks be to God. We do this with our Jesus, who is fighting for us. Jesus, who knows what it's like to conquer sin, who knows what it's like to conquer death, who knows what it's like to look evil in the face and win. He's on your side. He's fighting for you. Because our Jesus longs for the day when we will be with him and he will be able to put on your head the crown of life. And he will be able to wrap wrap you in a white robe. And he will be able to hand you a stone and only you is going to know what's on it. Jesus longs for that day when all of us will say, when he knocks at that door, oh, we're ready. We're ready. 
because we have made it a practice of repenting and we have made it a practice of holding fast and we have made it a practice of following you. Let everyone with an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to this church.